Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Rocket tranquility. We copy you on the ground. That's one small step for man. One it was really dramatic, rough terrain, cratered, hilly, and I kept thinking, nobody's ever been here before. I'm on the moon. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and the first of a series of special episodes we are going to bring you in July, which celebrate 50 years since man walked on the moon. We've got some great stuff coming up, some incredible interviews, the highlight of which is an interview with Charlie Duke, who was on Apollo 16. He was the 10th man to walk on the moon, one of only four men left alive who has actually set foot on the lunar surface. So later in the month, we're going to bring you that interview. We've got a whole range of fascinating interviews about the Apollo space program and the incredible achievement that was walking on the moon. The first of those today is an interview with NASA historian Brian Odom, Brian is based at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. This is the center that built the Saturn V rocket that took man to the moon. It's an extraordinary facility, and Brian has a a huge knowledge of the entire space program, but particularly what went on around this time of Apollo and the significance of that program to put men on the moon. So it was a real privilege to catch up with Brian. And let's hear him now talking about the Apollo space program. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Living History to talk about what is a very special anniversary. Hey, thanks, Matt. I'm glad to be here. This is uh, exciting. You work at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama, and I think particularly from an Australian perspective, we would be familiar with uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida, where the spaceships launched from. We'd be familiar with Houston, uh, where Mission Control was, but I think we'd know less about your institution in Alabama, in spite of the fact that that's actually the largest NASA institution, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a huge thing, and particularly during Apollo. I mean, Marshall is known as a propulsion center, so that's what we do. We build, you know, develop, design, test big rockets there. I mean, that's that's what we do. And it, you know, you mentioned it's it's pretty common that you know, even for people in America, not just in Australia, you know, when you think about Apollo, you think about those iconic images, and if you're talking about launch vehicles, it's not usually the construction that comes to mind, but it's the launch down at Kennedy Space Center, you know, the fire and the, just the, you know, how, how cool those events are. But uh, there's so much work that goes on in getting it to the pad and, you know, for Apollo and for the space shuttle program and 
now for the space launch system. I mean, that's a lot of work that uh, that Marshall's heavily involved in. So you deal with specifically propulsion at the at the the space center there. So to tell us a bit more about that. So obviously the construction of rockets. You developed the Saturn V for the Apollo program. Tell us a little bit more about what goes on there. Yeah, I mean, it even predates that. I mean, back in the uh, early times during the Army years at Marshall, uh, well, the Army time when Marshall was, uh, before Marshall was created, uh, you know, you had the uh, the Von Braun team uh, that came over, uh, and they got to Huntsville in, I guess, you know, June of 1950. So from 1950 to 1960, they were developing a lot of the, uh, you know, the Redstone rocket. So America's response to Sputnik, you know, launched uh, on a Jupiter C rocket, which was basically which was provided by Marshall Space. Well, yeah, provided by the Army uh, Redstone Arsenal before Marshall. Uh, the Redstone rocket, the you know that was important there. Uh, you know, I guess Alan Shepard's first launch, you know, May fifth, nineteen sixty one, that was aboard a Mercury Redstone, Redstone the launch vehicle, and that was something that uh, Marshall had contributed as well. So. You know, the Saturn One, Saturn Five. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of work that's going on in the background there. You mentioned Von Braun and the the team. I mean, this relates directly to World War Two. And interestingly, I, I lived in London for a couple of years, and at the end of my street was a little church, and it had damage on the side, which I assumed was from the Second World War. And what I found out when I did some research is that was from a V two rocket that landed in the park next to the church. So. We've got this whole chapter of history related to the vengeance weapons that the Nazis were firing on London. That's very closely linked to America's space program, isn't it? Can you talk us through that that era a little bit and this connection between what was happening in Germany in the Second World War and the early days of the American space race? Yeah, well, a lot of what the uh, the Germans have done, you know, Von Braun's team, he's a young guy, he comes in, he leads this group, and they really, for the first time in, in for the first time ever, ballistic missile development that you know, took something that had been theory and really made it, you know, they developed a lot of experience, put it into practice. They solved a lot of problems like guidance and control uh, and, and developed, a, you know, for a wartime uh, piece that was the V2 rocket. Uh, you know, and definitely that, you know, that's a that's a kind of a harsh chapter in this whole history, because, you know, as as we know, there's there's a lot of things associated with that as far as, you know, the development of those rockets, uh, the manufacturing in particular, uh, you know, the use of concentration camp labor and that sort of thing. So it definitely puts a you know, it's a it's a harsh thing. And, you know, President Truman, who signed on to what became Project Paperclip, that brought these uh, this team over to America. You know, that was a, you know, even Truman himself had a lot of problems kind of justifying that, you know, on a moral issue. You know, is this something that we can be involved in? Uh, but the decision was made basically out of a new Cold War necessity that was emerging around them that, you know, you want to get this tech, you want to get this experience that this group has and harness that, you know, intellectual capital or intellectual reparations, I guess. But and you also want to deny it to who you now see as a, you know, the next enemy, which would be the Soviet Union. So eventually Truman agrees to uh, to go through with it. 118 uh, Von Braun and 118 people uh, come across with him as part of this project paperclip. They go out into the desert. They bring a lot of V2 hardware with them. You know, a lot of this, you know, the work that was done out there was, you know, firing and refining these systems. And that V2 engine basically is the same engine that goes into the Redstone rocket, which, you know, definitely, like you said, that connection between those two things, between those two programs is, is, is actually pretty profound when you, when you think about it. But, you know, very interesting. Into the 1950s. Um, the, 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 the development of the space race against the Soviet Union. I mean, America, pretty much at every turn, was behind the Soviets. Talk us through 
some of those achievements that had been made in the 1950s in space exploration and uh, America's situation in relation to the Russians. Yeah, you know, that was always part of the part of the story was that uh, with Sputnik in October of 1957, you know, the Soviets take, you know, the first big step and then put them, you know, put the world's first uh, satellite into orbit. And, you know, for people in America that, you know, and I guess, you know, in different parts of the world that had a pretty profound psychological shock because, you know, people, the Soviet Union that a lot of people had viewed at the time, you know, based on the propaganda of the age as being, you know, this vast backwards country that, you know, technology was far inferior of, of any, you know, Western power. All of a sudden that's changed over seemingly overnight. And there's this fear, you know, fear of the unknown of, of, of what might go on. But, you know, Eisenhower was somebody who, as president of America, president of the United States at the time, Eisenhower, he had access to information that a lot of people, you know, the American public didn't have. And he knew there wasn't a missile gap. He, he understood the situation a little better. But, you know, the public is different. The public was inflamed by these things. They demanded an American response to kind of, you know, if you will, reset the balance of power. And as they saw it before that, before that event. Um, and, and Explorer One was again launched aboard a, a Jupiter C, developed uh, right in here in North Alabama, and you know it, for a moment it seemed that things were getting better. But you know, lo and behold, in April of 1961, you know the, uh, the clock kind of strikes again with uh, you know out, you know uh, Yuri Gagarin's you know flight, his orbital flight, and that just again America was behind. And by this time, you had a new president, you know President John F. Kennedy, who had who basically ran on, you know, being a new man who was going to bring, you know, America's full potential to bear in these issues uh, that Eisenhower was behind and he was lost. He was, you know, asleep at the wheel, but it's on, you know, Kennedy's, Kennedy's watch that, uh, you know, America loses again. And that really has a, you know, again, a psychological blow to America, but it has a psychological blow to, to Kennedy because, you know, Kennedy, it's a short period of time later, America does respond the following month on May the 5th, 1961 with, Alan Shepard's flight in this, you know, in the suborbital flight into space, still not the accomplishment of what Gergarian had done. But, uh, you know, Kennedy believes now that we've got 15 minutes of space flight and he's kind of scrambling, you know, where, where is the next piece? Where, where can we achieve a victory? And really the impetus for, you know, uh, the Apollo program is born of that, uh, of that psychological state that, you know, where, where, where can we beat him? Well, we believe we can do this. And Kennedy says, well, if we believe we can do it, then we have to do it. Well, as you say, Kennedy made that famous speech in 1961 that uh, committing that America was going to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade. I mean, audacious doesn't really sum up how really crazy that statement was at the time. <laughs> I mean, people looked at that as, as absolutely remarkable, as you said, that America only had you know mere minutes in space, and now they were going to send a man to the moon. Sum up for us just how audacious that, statement was what had been achieved at this just put it in terms for us that we can understand what had america actually achieved at the point that kennedy made that speech just to illustrate what a huge leap going to the moon was going to be yeah well i i can tell you i mean what we would the 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 rocket that we would produce that would land human beings on the moon uh the saturn V was capable of generating you know 7.5 million pounds of thrust at launch uh, the vehicle that launched uh, Alan Shepard was capable of generating 86,000 pounds of thrust maximum. So, I mean, that's a huge, gigantic leap. You know, you just don't scale up those things. You do, you know, so th the people at Marshall 
understood what the challenge would be, but it, it's almost a situation where they didn't even understand the technical challenges that they would face until they began to actually develop the technology. So it's it's learning every day, and you know, so you know, the audacity of you know of Kennedy's declaration really struck people. I've you know I've heard lots of different comments about you know they were up for the challenge because they were so young, you know, it's, it's, that's one of the things to remember that the average age here is, you know, 20, 25, 27 years old. And, you know, these, these engineers just didn't know what they didn't know and they didn't know any better. So it gave them this, you know, naivete that actually worked in their favor, you know, going forward. And, and in Kennedy's mind, it was, you know, Kennedy was someone who thought in, in terms of this, he thought in terms of, you know, you know, kind of a Camelot style, you know, this is this is the world that I will bring us to. This world where these things are possible, and and failure is not an option, and you know all of these different types of things. But that kind of that speaks to Kennedy's romanticism with technology that that Eisenhower never shared. Eisenhower once referred to you know uh, technology as soul soulless and barren. You know, it wasn't it wasn't what Kennedy thought. Kennedy understood technology as having the power to reshape society. To, to unleash a social revolution. And, you know, so, so it was just, it was, a, it was a break. In his mind, it was a break with the old world. This whole era in America, I mean, I, I look at it as someone who was born after this era and on the other side of the world. I look to America, perhaps with rose-coloured glasses a little bit, but in the 1950s and the 1960s, it was the absolute pinnacle of this, this raw ambition from America, this optimism that America could do anything. I mean, it really was a time that I don't think has been seen before or since where America just felt that it could achieve anything. And I mean, that was summed up so well in the space program, wasn't it? I think you're exactly right. I mean, the level of optimism, you know, America had been a, you know, a, a superpower for a very short period of time. After World War I, when America had emerged on the international scene, it had quickly retreated into a, you know, to an isolationism. Uh, you know, the Great Depression had struck everyone and it had, you know, made people think internally about what can we do for infrastructural improvements and focus on the self. And World War II had broken that mold again and America had emerged onto the scene. And, you know, an important thing that you know, comes out of World War II was the development of the, uh, the atomic bomb. Uh, you know, things like the atomic bomb and the Apollo program are, are, are somewhat linked because they, they, you know, show a world of, you know, fantasy becoming a world of reality. And that, and the people who grew up in that world, you know, it set them with a sense of optimism of the things we believed to be impossible just de- a decade before now were an everyday reality. And, uh, you know, atomic energy was coming on the scene. And, you know, it was just, it, it was, everything was, every day was a new marvel. And, the people in that were involved in the Apollo program were just going to produce yet another new marvel, something that was, you know, just incredible and, and just so impressive. And, you know, they wanted to be part of that. And Kennedy's goal, you know, one of the things it does is it doesn't just energize, but it brings everything to a focal point. All of that optimism is placed in in one key place, like you said, at one particular time where all of these other currents are there uh, and, and things are, you know, coming together when people believe that they themselves will produce the next great marvel. During the research for this uh, special series we're doing on the moon landing, I've spoken to quite a few historians about the space race, and several of them have expressed to me the the concept that Kennedy's statement about going to the moon, this 
this plan to put America on a course to land a man on the moon by the end of the 60s was so audacious. It was such a huge leap that that's what gave America an opportunity to catch up to the Russians by projecting, rather than just saying, okay, let's take the next step, by planning to take a step that was a thousand steps in the future of space development, that enabled them to catch up to the Russians and overtake the Russians because the Russians had no plans to put a man on the moon either. Do you, do you see that, uh, that, that era in, in the same way? I, in a way, I do. I see, you know, knowing it, it was impossible for the people, you know, going through that period to know what the Russians had planned. You know, it was these series of one-offs and and to, and Kennedy, you know, uh, having access to to what he had access to. I mean, he could kind of see behind the curtain, but you know, the the people here didn't, and and that left them with a, you know, just a just a continued wonder about what the, you know, if if they if the Soviets could accomplish Sputnik. If they could then accomplish, uh, you know, uh, manned flight or, you know, manned orbit with Yuri Gagarin, what, what was their next step going to be? Well, well, obviously, you know, we look back in hindsight and we see how it's going to end. But at the time that, you know, when all this was was unfolding, it was, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty about this. And, and, and so Kennedy's, you know, maneuver to say, well, we're going to do the most ultimate thing that can be done in space. And that's going to be our goal. And nothing short of that will be successful basically throws puts all the cards on the table right because either you do that or you don't do that and and Kennedy you can kind of see you know historically you know when you look at the uh, at the records you can kind of see Kennedy wrestling with that as well uh throughout his his life which again was was cut short in November of 63 so he's you know not around for a long time to see this you know uh he's wrestling with these things and asking you know the NASA administrator Jim's Jim Webb and he's saying you know are we going to win because if we're not going to win, we shouldn't be playing this game because it's much too expensive to be playing this game. Did the people involved in this project, Brian, actually think it could be achieved? Because as you said earlier in the interview, the technology didn't exist. The the, the knowledge to go to the moon didn't exist. There was so much to be done that it was it was quite an outrageous idea that by the end of the 1960s, man would be walking on the moon. Did the people involved in those early days actually believe they were going to pull it off or was it simply a case of well we'll give it our best shot and we'll see what happens <laughs> it just really depends on who you ask i guess uh you know from person to person that is completely different you'll hear uh you know people saying you know it's like uh, you're sitting around you know, you know just shooting you know shooting the breeze with someone and then the president comes out and tells everybody what you're shooting the breeze with you know <laughs> it's uh, uh he's, he's kind of spilling your secret but you know i I think that they did. Again, it's just that 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 youth and they had absolute faith at Marshall in particular. Uh, they had absolute faith in their in their management structure. And that was such an important piece because, you know, you go back to the V2 era. A lot of the, the people who were in charge at, at, at Marshall during this time were were from that same group of people. Uh, the Germans dominated, you know, the, both the laboratories where they were solving the hard problems uh, center management, uh, you know, Werner von Braun and, you know, Dr. Everhard Reese, who was his uh, technical uh, associate. Uh, these young people, these 23, 24 year olds had absolute faith that these that these guys knew everything to, that could be known. You know, and, it, and it's just such a you know, it's a it's a fascinating really to talk to people and, and the memories they have of of those people. Uh, you know, just gave them this level of confidence. And then if the president says you can do it, you know, I mean, 
it's up to you now. And, and yeah, they had hard problems. And as they would encounter, you know, just it's, it's not long into the program that they began to count, encounter those huge technical problems. I mean, one of them was just, you know, not, not to go into it too deep, but, you know, combustion instability in the F1 engine. I mean, basically all that is, is the, we don't really understand how a large, an engine this size, the problems that it have with, that it has, that it experiences in development were not even understood. So if you if you don't understand the problem, how do you solve the problem that you can't understand? And back then they didn't have the analytical tools that we have today. You know, so they were trying to solve these problems on the ground with very rudimentary tools and you know just a lack of understanding of you know thermal flow and 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 how all this works. And, and so they were they you know these problems every every new problem was a problem that could prevent the mission from being accomplished. And and you know, just the, the, again, like you said, the audacity to believe that you can do anything. It was, it was a very particular time in American history. And, you know, I mean, we can, we can talk about it too, but the other thing that's going on here is the, you know, the, throughout the 1960s in America and across the world to some degree, you know, it, social issues are on fire, you know, in America, in the location we're in today, you know, the, the South was, you know, still the, the Jim Crow South of segregation and, and, you know, in the midst of all this technological marvel, you had a, had a world that existed of, of, you know, two separate cities, you know, there was a city for African-Americans and then there was a city for whites and all of these things came together at the same time. And it's, it's really, it's just amazing. You're so right in, in talking about America at this time. I mean, I've, I've heard America described before as the great contradiction, that on one hand, you've got this incredible coming together of hundreds of thousands of people to make the Apollo space program a success and to put man on the moon. And then, as you say, the, the social issues that are going on in the background. Also, we've got the Vietnam War taking off at this time. It really was an era of, of dramatic change, to put it very mildly, wasn't it? It was, I mean, you know, and that's something that Kennedy wrestles with because Kennedy understands that, you know, a lot of it is political. You know, Kennedy understands that he's won a narrow election against Richard Nixon, the vice, you know, Eisenhower's vice president. And he understands that he has the ability now as president to transform the South and to really bring the South into the fold. Uh, you know, there, there was, you know, the Civil War in the minds of a lot of people in the South, you know, the Civil War hadn't ended. You know, it was still... There were still these these two separate countries almost, and and Kennedy and Johnson to a larger degree later on, you know, utilized this this funding for the space program as a lever to to you know to bring the South further into the fold to to bring new uh, develop a new middle class that would understand you know a Sun Belt economy where you know uh, people had jobs and they, and they you know were technological jobs, um, so that was all changing too and. Kennedy, uh, from the very beginning, Kennedy understood that civil rights was, you know, a big piece of that was going to be civil rights to, you know, could he change the South and, and, and be electable in 1964? Um, and he, he did do that with, you know, in 1961, in March of that year, he issues uh, executive orders about uh, equal employment opportunity in the federal government. So, again, pushing uh, that just pushing that action and pushing that further and Kennedy was great at that. And that had a ripple effect across the South because the places like Huntsville, Alabama, where these jobs existed, uh, you know, segregated cities, you know, the civil rights activists here in the city understand that now that federal investment and those laws on equal employment opportunity have become leverage to, to really transform that society, to tear down Jim Crow segregation and to make it a new world, uh, you know, because they want to embrace those new opportunities as well. Um, 
you know, places like, you know, historically black colleges and universities here locally. You know, those colleges were wanting to take advantage of this new funding and these new positions to, to train a new class of African-American engineers. And all of this stuff came together in, in this in this critical role. And as the decade wore on, you know, you, it, it it continued because there was, you know, President when uh, Kennedy is assassinated and President Johnson, uh, you know, Johnson becomes president, Lyndon Johnson becomes president. Uh, you know, he he actually says, you know, we're going to expand this because I believe we can we can push harder. We can push further. And he begins a war on poverty, uh, you know, in the South. And it's it's just it has these ripple effects that people, uh, you know, take for granted today. But looking back and, and that's one of the things I think about Apollo and we'll, we can come back to this. But I think that's why the legacy of Apollo is that is all, it's all these things. It's, you know, the hidden figures, the African-Americans who are working in the program. But Apollo was so big and it was so it was so powerful ideologically, economically, that it that it could transform society. It, it didn't just land on the moon and, and it's and, and go away. It, it changed America forever. It changed, you know, to some degree, changed the world. One of the examples of, uh, you know, just how audacious this program was, the changes that would, would be required. I mean, the most obvious example is probably the technology when we talk about getting man to the moon. And in your installation down there in Alabama, the, where the Saturn V rocket was developed, I mean, that was really crucial, wasn't it? I, I understand that there were, there were incredible technological developments at every stage of this program, but no one was going anywhere unless they came up with a rocket powerful enough to get them out of the Earth's atmosphere and to the moon. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about, I mean, it's your baby really down there in, in, in Huntsville. Tell us a little bit about the Saturn V and, and what a remarkable piece of technology that was. It really is. I mean, it's it's still, you know, to this day, it's still just one of the most impressive things that, you know, humanity, I believe, has ever produced. You know, you hear, uh, you know, you just you, you hear you talk to people about being here in Huntsville when they were testing that rocket and you know, just the first stage. I mean, it's a most it's a very powerful first stage. But, you know, it has these five F1 engines, each one capable of generating one point five million pounds of thrust. And you know, collecting those things together and testing them in one system and, and people could feel the vibrations and, you know, in their, in their homes, in the, in the nearby city, you know, that's something that that generation grew up with and, and no one that was here, you know, forgets where they were the first time they felt it and, and how, how big of a deal that was. And, you know, but from just developing the technology itself, it was just, like you said, it was, it was a marvel. It just, the, this, the power of the individual turbo pumps for the, for the engines just, you know, something that had never been, you know, uh, even conceivable before. And, and as, as we mentioned before, with problems like combustion instability, with problems like, uh, you know, just getting those turbo pumps to function how you how you want them to. It's 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 amazing. And, you know, developing new materials because, you know, old the old alloys just weren't working you know, properly. It's you know, you want to have as light of a vehicle as possible, but it has to be very rigid, very strong. And so finding a balance there, finding, you know, materials that will allow you to have, you know, in the, in the second stage of the vehicle, the, you know, the, the Saturn V, that, that second stage, you have hydrogen in there in just huge quantities. And if hydrogen gets, you know, it likes to be at about negative 450 degrees, or it basically just boils off, it evaporates. And so, understanding new processes of developing insulation to keep that from happening. You know, that was out in California. They solved that problem in a, from a number of different angles. But one of the things they did was they looked at 
you know, how they would develop surfboards. You know, they looked at the surfboard design and they said, hey, that might work. That type of insulation, that honeycomb style insulation, let's let's apply that here and, and see how it works. And it did, you know, so it's it's so it just so. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Impressive. You know, California, obviously, contributing surfboard technology was a, was a big piece. <laughs> but, but yeah, every, every piece of this is just, it's, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, doing, I'm not doing it justice, really, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's difficult to summarize in only a few minutes the magnitude of everything that was going on and the coming together of all these ideas. Like you say, surfboard technology. I mean, that applies to the people as well. Like the, the, even the astronauts themselves. I, as part of this series, I'm, I've been fortunate to interview Charlie Duke, who went to the moon on Apollo 16. And, and he was saying that when he joined the, the program, they weren't even sure what type of person they needed to be an astronaut. Even the concept of who was going to be an astronaut and, and, and what skills you would require to walk on the moon was, was up in the air. And th- th- there was a suggestion that maybe deep sea divers would be the right sort of people <laughs> or, or maybe acrobats to deal with the weightlessness in space that they, they absolutely had no idea. I absolutely love that. There's a naivety to it that I absolutely love that the idea that we had to create from scratch all of these concepts. Talk to me a little bit about the astronauts who were eventually chosen because they decided that test pilots were the way to go in the end. Talk to me just about this amazing group of men who, uh, you know, who went through all the programs through Mercury and, and Gemini and then, then on to Apollo. Talk to me about this amazing group of men that, that actually would go into space. That's exactly right. I mean, it takes a, it takes a very unique mind to do that of you know physically uh, obviously the physicality of being an astronaut to this day you know continues to be a key rec- key prerequisite i mean you know the work that these men and women do today is is incredible and the shape that they're in and the you know but their minds and 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 what they have to know to 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 accomplish this job um uh, you know you mentioned you know, the development of the Saturn V hardware, you know, you would expect that the you know, the engineers who are down in, you know, in the, in the weeds with these things, you know, they understand them from top, you know, their piece of it, they understand very well. But one of the things about the astronauts is that they were trained 
on, you know, each person was given one piece of hardware that they had to learn. So you'd have someone who was, who became basically an expert on the Saturn five. You had somebody who became an expert on the command module on the lunar rover and all of these different pieces, the guidance computers. So, you know, they had to be, you know, Renaissance men, right. They had to be able to do all of these things and just take in all of this information and then be able to still have those steel nerves when when things were going when things didn't go as you planned to be reactive to it and to use that all that time you've done you that you all the work you've done in simulators to to prepare yourself for this to prepare for every eventuality that might occur and and be ready for it and not you know not get too tense not you know so it's it's incredible you go back to you know the first program uh, the Mercury Seven and and you think about you know, the work that they were going to have to do. Basically, you know, for Mercury, it was a little different. Mercury was a program that was just putting human beings into space. And, and that was basically the, the idea because there was so much you didn't know about that. Could, could we put a human being in space and how would they react to it? Would they be able to see? Would their eyes get distorted? Would they, you know, be it? Would they go, you know, there was the idea that, you know, there might be some space insanity or something, you know, so all of those things were on the table. So we move in the success of, during the success of Mercury, we solved a lot of problems. And the next step was the Gemini program. And Gemini was about, you know, learning to live and work in space. Okay, now we can get to space. Now let's be there for a little bit. Let's learn some things that we're going to need to go to Apollo. So, you know, docking, uh, you know, rendezvous and docking with spacecraft on orbit was something that, you know, very difficult. It's just, you know, it's a piece that people take for granted that you can maneuver in space and in orbital mechanics and get things to line up just like you like them and, and then dock with another spacecraft. If, you know, if you've seen the movie First Man, you see the problems with some of that, right? I mean, you know, Neil Armstrong is in space during Gemini and, you know, he's docking with the Agena vehicle and, and things go wrong. And, and what do you do when things go wrong? So that exemplifies, again, the type of person that these guys were, that, that they were a willing to risk this. I mean, then by the time you get to the Apollo program you think about, you know, Apollo one, you know, the, the, the fire, you know, Apollo one reminded everybody exactly what it was they were doing, how risky this was. And, you know, the astronauts themselves, I mean, Gus Grissom before, you know, he's one of the astronauts that's killed in the Apollo one fire, you know, Grissom, they ask him that question, you know, how risky is this? And he says, you know, it's very risky and we understand the risks. And if something happens, know that we've understood the risks, but that the risks were worthwhile because of the larger, you know, the larger mission of what we're doing. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, it, in it, doing all of these things and learning all these things, knowing what the risks were and still going through with it. You know, if, if there's a, if there's a group of people who are, you know, who were heroes at a time when people needed heroes. It was, it was these, these guys and, and the work that they were doing. But again, also don't forget the science side of it. I mean, Harrison Schmidt, the, you know, the last man, you know, one of the, <laughs> one of the last men on the moon, you know, he's a, a geologist, you know, he's, he's a PhD geologist and he's taught people, you know, when we get to the moon, why do we go to the moon? You know, again, today we're going back to the moon in 2024. Why do we go back to the moon? Well, the moon tells us a lot of very important things and, and these astronauts understood all of this. They understood the value of the science, the value of, of what they were doing, and, and, and took those risks just beautifully. You mentioned Apollo 1, the, the fire in 1967 that killed three Apollo astronauts. When I spoke to Charlie Duke, and I mentioned this because he was obviously very heavily involved in the program at this time, he was one of the astronauts training for the Apollo program at the time. 
and he expressed the view that it wasn't all plain sailing, that even though there was this optimism and even though great achievements were being made every day, that he did touch on the fact that perhaps there was a little bit of this go fever, this idea that we have to go, we have to go, we have to go, and that perhaps corners were being cut, that perhaps the risks weren't being fully understood and that the Apollo 1 fire changed all of that. And he said it was a new program after Apollo 1, the way they did things, the caution that they used going forward. Do you see that in your his- in your analysis, the history of this time? It definitely. I mean, you know, the the things that were going on that led to Apollo 1, you know, the, like you said, the schedule and the pressure to fulfill the mission by the end of the decade, particularly after, you know, Kennedy is, uh, is, is assassinated, uh, you know, now doing this for a martyr president and making sure that it was done and, and the Cold War value of all of this to making sure that we weren't beat again. Because, you know, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of people, uh, there's this, this notion that after a while, after after Gagarin's flight, that the Russians somehow just went away and stopped playing the game. You know, they didn't. The, the Russians get back in. They, they lost their, you know, Sergei Korolev uh, passes away in the middle of their program. And he was you know, someone that was incredibly vital to their own, their own program. And when he's, and when he's gone, there is this lull, but the Russians by the 19, by 1968, the Russians are in clearly back in the game. So there is this pressure that, that feeds back into the system. This, this, this system of over 400,000 people nationwide who are developing these, you know, hardware across the country. And, you know, almost every state is contributing something to this program. Um, and, and they did feel the pressure. But Apollo won that far. I think it really, like you said, it just it reset the table. It it made people turn. Why are we doing this when there are people involved in this? And let's let's clean up. Let's get the system back together. And, and there were a lot of changes that were made in management. Uh, there were a lot of changes that were made in vehicle design. You know, they had allowed certain things like, uh, you know, one of the you know one of the problems with Apollo one was the hundred percent oxygen environment of the capsule. But that wasn't done because uh, you know, for a sloppy reason, there, there, there were all they were used to that 100% oxygen environment because one of the things it does is it reduces complexity and it reduces weight. But there were correlated issues of you know things in the cabin, just the wiring wasn't up to up to snuff, and and there was you know okay, well we can't get it there in time. Well, after Apollo one fire, we've got time. You know, we've got time. We've got resources. Let's get back in there and let's solve these problems. It's really remarkable to think that it was only two years after that fire that we actually walked on the moon because that could have been the thing that, I won't say ended the program, but losing three astronauts on the launch pad during a test. And and the first one as well, Apollo 1. This wasn't Apollo 7 or Apollo, you know, Apollo 1, the first the first Apollo program, the first capsule on the on the launch pad, losing those astronauts. I mean, it, there, there must have been a temptation there to delay the program, to put the brakes on and say, okay, well, let's let's not worry if it doesn't occur in the '60s. Let's just do it right. Well, yeah. Well, Apollo one, you know, again, the, that was that was just part of a test, right? So this is, if, you know, if we're having these problems on a test, what is it going to be like when we finally get this gigantic Saturn V that has all these problems? Because another decision that was made pretty early on was not. To te- it was called the all-up decision. George Miller, who was uh, uh, one of the administrators in headquarters, uh, he, he said, you know, if we're going to meet this schedule, we, we can't test this vehicle like the Germans would like to, which is one stage at a time. In fact, we're going to test it all at one time. We're going to stack the vehicle. We're going to launch it. We won't have humans on board. 
but we, we have to jump start this schedule. And Apollo 4, you know, was the first launch of a Saturn V, November of 1967. So you're talking about just in the fall of the year where you where you have lost astronauts. And, you know, that that launch, Apollo 4, was flawless. It was, you know, it was they couldn't have imagined that it would have gone as well as it did. I mean, just everything clicked just at, at one stroke. So they, you know, there's this confidence there. Well, the next launch of a Saturn V was Apollo 6. And the launch of Apollo 6 was almost terrible at every stage, except for the fact that it actually achieved its goal of, you know, it, it achieved an orbit, which wasn't exactly the one they wanted, but it was close. I mean, there was pogo of the vehicle, you know, which is basically, you know, a thrust oscillation up and down the vehicle causes it to shake violently. Uh, if there had been crew at the top, you know, in the, in the capsule, probably would have sustained some sort of injury. We're not, we're not certain about that, but uh, the second stage, you lose two engines, two out of your five J2 engines, you lose that. Uh, you finally get separation of the third stage. And that stage, which is designed to restart in orbit, fails. Uh, it doesn't restart. So you've got problems all up and down the vehicle. But because the Russians are still in the game, in descent, the decision is made after Apollo 6, even though it was flawed as it was. The next launch of a Saturn V is going to have humans on top of it. So all of these things are, you know, are, 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 are problematic, but the schedule is what it was. And the, you know, the, the Russians, you know, threatening to, to send humans around the moon. Uh, Apollo 7, that was a Saturn 1B, a smaller, you know, a smaller vehicle. But it had gone so well that they said, well, OK, we'll send human beings on Apollo 8. And that's what they did. And, you know, you talk about bad years, 1968 was a horrible year in American history. And, and again, to some degree across, across the world, uh, you know, every day you had the Vietnam war in 67 and 68 was at its peak. Uh, the same day the Apollo six had launched Martin Luther King jr. Was assassinated that summer, Robert Kennedy, who's, you know, one of the front runners for the democratic, uh, uh, to be nominated for president. He's assassinated in Los Angeles. At 1968, at the end of that year, People were looking for anything, anything to take their minds off what was going on. Apollo 8 delivered that. Apollo 8 was a very successful mission, sends three astronauts around the moon. Uh, you know, they read from the book of Genesis on the way back on Christmas Eve. Uh, they take a photo during that mission that basically of, of all of the Apollo missions is one of the most iconic photos. And it's not really of the moon. It's of the Earth rising over the lunar, the lunar horizon. And it just gave people, you know, that image, you know, it's, it energizes the environmental movement and it gives people this, this view of themselves that they've never had before. And, and really, you know, it's really a, a time for reflection. And, you know, to this day, that image, you know, it's still, you know, one of the most iconic NASA images that there is. So 1968, you know, ups and downs, a lot of work is going on during the, for the Apollo program, but that in, year ends on a very successful note with the success of Apollo 8 and really sets the stage for Apollo 11. I think Apollo 8 must rate as the, well, the most underrated of the Apollo missions because it was just, it was an extraordinary achievement that doesn't really get talked about very much. So it's great that you've, uh, you've summed up the importance of it there. Moving forward to Apollo 11, the one that would land on the moon, we're celebrating the, the 50th anniversary uh, this year. Talk to me about Neil Armstrong because he's a an, an enigmatic figure, and everyone that talks about him—I mean, he wasn't a 
he wasn't a he wasn't the right man from necessarily from the publicity point of view because he wasn't uh, he wasn't as outgoing as someone like Buzz Aldrin. But every person I've spoken to who's involved in the program who knew Neil Armstrong said that he was absolutely the right man for the job. So tell us a little bit about Neil Armstrong and 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 the significance of his role in Apollo Eleven. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, but I think from a mission standpoint, I don't think they could have found a better person, someone who's, you know, that eye for detail and somebody with a mind that can really take all this in and 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 be cool and collective in the simulator and and, and then reproduce that, you know, uh, as he's, you know, as, as the mission is unfolding. But yeah, you're right. Is from a PR standpoint, he never was somebody who was outspoken. Uh, he he never he preferred to be more more quiet, you know, behind the scenes. But he was always very supportive of the space program. He was always someone, even in his later career, you know, he's a professor and, you know, he would he would step up whenever people needed him to support, you know, whatever NASA was doing. So, you know, somebody who's always engaged. And I think, you know, the one of the again, we mentioned it a while ago, but, uh, the you know, the movie First Man is just that was released this past year. You know, I think it really captures that because, you know, Jim Hansen, uh, the author of the book First Man, you know, it's to me, it's uh, he tells that he, he really does a great job summing up who this enigmatic character is somebody who's, you know, he, he's all about the mission. He's not about the self. Uh, he's all about doing the right thing. Uh, you know, as an X 15 pilot, uh, doing something as a test pilot, that was very, uh, difficult. That was very, you know, risky. So, you know, he, he lived his life with risk. Uh, and so Apollo was no different to him. And I think really as the mission plays out, you know, Apollo, as the Apollo 11 mission plays out, you see, um, you know, you see Neil responding to things that, you know, I don't believe I could have responded to. And I don't believe many other people could have uh, just this idea that he's, you know, willing to take control. He's, you know, he sees what's happening as he's landing in the lunar module. He sees uh, problems. He sees that he's going to land. You know, if he if he does what he's supposed to, he's going to land in a you know in a in a you know basically a crater the size of a football field that's filled with boulders. And he says, you know, I'm going to push forward. And the whole time, these alarms are going off, telling him telling him something is you know that uh, you know 12:01 and 12:02. Which if you listen to the landing, you you hear those alarms going off. And what that is is the the computer on the lander was was working overtime and it was getting too much information and uh, I won't go into detail about it but one of the problems was is while it was looking the computer was trying to see where the ground was they'd forgotten to turn off the switch that was looking to see where the uh, actually the command module was and so the the poor little computer is trying to find out where it is in relation to two different things at the same time but Neil Armstrong you know, he's heard this before. He's been in a simulator. The people back at Johnson Space Flight Center, they've been they, they know what's going on. And, you know, they're responding to it as they should. Uh, and, and Neil finally does deliver that vehicle. He's, he's you know, his heart rate gets quite quite high. But but uh, he's, you know, steely nerved the guy that he is. He, he does the job. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think Neil is somebody who, you know, and, and there's a reason people, uh, you know, see Neil as this this ultimate hero, you know, because. One of the things about about being, you know, shy from a public relations standpoint is he was enigmatic. People could see, but you can see yourself in someone like that, right? He 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 holds a lot to the vest about who he was, and, and so people could kind of see themselves in him. They could see him as someone who's quiet, reserved, and you know, just just what they thought he was. So he could be anything to everybody. It was he's it, just an amazing character. Did you think that movie First Man um, portrayed 
well, not just Neil Armstrong, but also the the Apollo program in an accurate way from your position as a historian? Did it did it give an an accurate impression of what this whole uh, this whole adventure was about? Well, you know, that's <laughs> asking any historian what a you know what a what a movie does. There there are these elements, right, that get that are, you know dramatization and, and are done for effect to to pull in other folks. And and if you're willing to look past those things, which I definitely am, you know, I think it's a great movie because I mean it sums up, you know, it 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 really summed up that character and, and what the program did. It, you know, one of the things about the Apollo program that people forget is the impact that it had on families. And not just Neil Armstrong's family. You know, you talk to people who work, you know, these 80 hour work weeks, you know, the engineers behind the scenes, you know, just just working to solve these huge problems, bringing the problems home with them, you know, and, and they're, they're thinking about how am I going to solve this? And that's what they do. They do that 24 hours a day. Basically, they dream about this. They they delay family vacations. They miss, you know, uh, they miss family events, baseball games, dance recitals you know, to solve, to, to make sure the schedule is going and it, and it does have a profound impact on them. You know, the divorce rate was very high among these people. Uh, and so the sacrifices that they made to, to fulfill that goal, you know, uh, are just in, incredible. So I think first man to me, the, the, the movie really did, uh, it, it got to that, you know, it got to that in a way that you could replace Neil Armstrong with an engineer who's going through that, you know, he's, he goes to work every day and they, they do what they do. And, you know, um, and it, and it was, and it was this type of program, but, you know, and the other thing is just, you know, uh, just, you know, the, the beauty of that, that film is another thing too, the visualization of it, because, you know, if NASA's anything, it's an image heavy institution. It's, you know, when people think NASA, they, they think about these iconic images and that videography for that, I mean, it was just, it, it was incredible. It, it portrayed that very well. Uh, you know, some of their launch footage. And, and one of the things that the, uh, the producers of that movie actually did was they got in touch with, they worked with NASA very closely. They worked with James, uh, James Hansen on that. But, uh, you know, we supplied them with a, a lot of this, you know, this footage that, you know, hadn't been seen before. 70 millimeter high quality footage that allowed them to, you know, tell that story a little, a little more visually appealing. And, and they did a fantastic job of that. That uh, the 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 family breakdowns, the strain on the families that you illustrated there, I think, is a really important aspect that we shouldn't overlook. Because I spoke to one of the NASA engineers who worked on the Apollo program, and he said it was the proudest thing that he did in his life, and he would never want to go through it ever again. <laughs> Talk to me about that collective effort behind the scenes, because I th- I was reading that I think it was four hundred thousand people were involved in this program uh, by the time it was completed. I mean. Talk to me about the importance of that collective effort for, at every level, not just the men who would be up on the moon, but at every level from engineers to, to, to people behind the scenes on this program. How important was that coming together of people? Exactly. I mean, you, you think about over, over 400,000 people working across the country, developing over five, five and a half million parts that all have to come together to produce one launch vehicle that all of those parts have to be you know, uh, the quality control on every piece. It only takes one thing to fail, right? I mean, it, all of these things have to work, but only one of them has to, has to have a critical failure. And it, and it doesn't. And, and the pride that people took in their work that, you know, and people, you know, that's one of the things about NASA today even is that the people, you know, take so much pride in the work that they do and, and the, the attention to detail because, you know, 
it's so it's it's so important, especially when you're thinking about something that's going to be in space that uh, you know it has to to work even not even from a, a launch vehicle. When you talk about you know things like a Chandra X-ray Observatory that 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 Marshall manages, you know all of those pieces have to come together, and it takes it takes a huge amount of effort behind the scenes. So yeah, Apollo wasn't any different. I mean, Apollo was was really a, a, you know a super version of that because logistically getting all those pieces together you have to have people you know moving one one thing to another place and bringing things to the cape testing engines um so yeah i mean it's it's just incredible and one of the things you know again going back to the social issues we we talk about you know the hidden figures moments you know not just for african americans but for you know women of of all stretch and that, that that participated in this that you know like we said just decades before had been you know, basically discriminated from these jobs, particularly African-Americans, you know, had been basically barred from these types of jobs uh, in the South. Uh, you know, there was just there was never going to be a hope. You know, if you're a young, uh, a young African-American in Alabama, you, you know, your professions are, are limited before you. But the Apollo program comes along and because of Civil Rights Act and a lot of different legislation that comes out of the civil rights movement. You know, now these careers are open to you. It's amazing. Looking back after 50 years, I mean, it's hard to believe it's been 50 years, but just looking back on this incredible achievement, I mean, I, when I spoke to one of the astronauts, his position was that his expectation was people would view this as a great American achievement. And the thing that heartened him deeply is that people overseas said, we did this, we walked on the moon. And so there was a great coming together of people. It wasn't seen just as an American achievement. It was seen as something that mankind had done. From your position, Talk to me about the legacy of, of Apollo and walking on the moon. Why was it important we went to the moon? And what does it mean for us as human beings 50 years down the track? I think you're definitely right. I mean, you know, from an international perspective, you know, the world was watching. It wasn't just America. This was something that, you know, while America may have led the way on this, it was something that the world looked at with great interest. You know, what is possible? What, you know, what is, how has technology changed over the over the decades that has gotten us to this point where you know mankind coming together can solve problems like this and i think you know there's something you know in the spirit of you know humanity that that sits at the seat of all of us that you know that's why it inspires us what's possible and that's something you know again that's something that space program nasa space programs around the world continue to do uh you know they continue to inspire the next generation of people because you know, big space programs are the work of generations, and it, it's it's insp- inspiring people to go down very difficult career paths. It's inspiring people to do the hard work to prepare themselves for a job as an engineer, as a scientist, to, you know, to contribute to one of these programs, knowing that you could be the person that, you know, is is going to solve something that, that, that we haven't done before and be part of something that's never been done, you know gravitational gravity gravitational wave detection i mean something like that we we still don't even understand you know there's there's it's still a difficult topic but you know black holes uh you know dark energy dark matter people can see the work that nasa is doing today and and you know and see the work that the space programs around the world are doing and be inspired by that and go down career paths that are incredibly rewarding and that's you know again that's one of the things right now nasa is engaged in the next big mission i mean uh you know we're going to go back to the moon by 2024. Uh, the vehicle that we're, you know, like where we had the Saturn V during Apollo. Today we have the Space Launch System, and that's a that's a huge vehicle, one of the you know the largest vehicle in development today. That's going to 
you know, take us back to the, you know, take us back to the moon and beyond on the Mars. But, you know, that's that work. The, the world is watching that as well. And the world will participate in that because, you know, whereas Apollo was in a, a Cold War context, you know, if we're going to do these hard things and sustain them going forward, it's going to take that international community. It's going to take everyone participating. And the greatest example of that is the International Space Station today. You know, people participate uh, in, in terms of, you know, the hardware that was developed for that, in terms of operations for that, and in terms of the science that goes on that every day. It's an it's a international thing that everyone in the world can take pride in, and that's, and that's, that's important. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time to discuss this because I, I can imagine how busy you are at this uh, at this stage with the the 50th anniversary coming up. But it's just, it's just been wonderful, and your insights and uh, the way you were able to articulate the importance of this program it's just been absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us. We'll get you back on the show on a, on a future episode. Just uh, thank you for your time. It's been really wonderful. Hey, you got it, man. Anytime you need anything from me, let me know. This is I, I enjoy doing this. That's one of the things about working for NASA is that. Uh, you know, there's, there's something that's just always incredibly interesting and diverse. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.